It can be hard nowadays to find a space where we're able to listen to each other, where we can agree to disagree. It's why I'm proud of 1A, a show that's made for you and by you. We're not about snark. We're about dialogue. Join the discussion and me, your host, Jen White, by listening to the 1A podcast from WAMU and NPR. With HBO's The Gilded Age, Downton Abbey creator Julian Fellows basically airlifts Downton's soapy plots, its baubles and ball gowns, its sneering servants and quippy old ladies out of Yorkshire and plops them down in the Manhattan of 1882. The show's central conflict isn't that of upper versus lower classes exactly, but something more quintessentially American. Old money versus new money, with new money the odds-on favorite. The show is about to return for a second season, so we thought it was a perfect time to revisit our conversation about the series. I'm Glenn Weldon, and today in this encore episode of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, we're talking about The Gilded Age. It's an election year, and a long one at that. So you're going to hear a lot of spin from the campaigns and their surrogates. Well, here and now, anytime is your source this election season for coverage that means something. Explore the issues, hear from voters, and find solutions on Here and Now, Anytime, a podcast from NPR and WBUR. Up First achieves the rare one-two punches of being short and thorough, national and international, fact-based and personable. Every morning, we take the three biggest stories of the day and explain why they matter. And we do it all in less than 15 minutes. So you can start your day a little more in the know than when you went to sleep. Listen now to the Up First podcast from NPR. Here and Now, Anytime is a show that helps you make sense of the news. We're not about clickbait headlines or salacious soundbites. And in 20 to 30 minutes every afternoon, we'll make you an expert on your world ease into your evening with a steadier, calmer lens on the news. Listen to Here and Now, Anytime from NPR and WBUR, wherever you get your podcasts. Some good stories come out of Washington, but most come out of communities like yours, far from the capital. Here and Now, Anytime is a podcast that taps into local newsrooms from Maine to San Diego to bring you stories that matter. Get closer to your community and find common ground with people around the world on Here and Now, Anytime from NPR and WBUR. Joining me today is Christina Tucker of the podcast, Wait, Is This a Date? from Autostraddle. Hey, Christina. Hello, Glenn. Welcome, welcome. And also with us is Greta Johnson, host of the beloved Nerdette podcast from WBEZ. Welcome, Greta. Hey, Glenn. Okay, let's get to it. This is going to be fun. In The Gilded Age, young Marion Brooke, played by Louisa Jacobson, is left with nothing when her father dies. She moves to New York City to live with her two aunts, or I should probably say aunts, the stern (laughs) Agnes and the warm-hearted Ada, played by Christine Baranski and Cynthia Nixon, respectively. Agnes is very clear. Their family is old money, and Marion is to have nothing to do with those grasping new money upstarts who just moved in across the street. George and Bertha Russell, played by Morgan Spector and Carrie Coon, are said upstarts. Bertha will do anything to become a fixture of old money society, and George is a ruthless but charming railroad robber baron. And speaking of railroads, British creator Julian Fellows is only too happy to touch the third rail of American life by including a person of color as a major character. That's got to be a first for this guy. Peggy, played by Danae Benton, is a young black writer who works as Agnes's secretary while hoping to publish her work and distance herself from her disapproving family. 
Toss in a gay subplot, a couple dozen other characters to keep track of, including servants and other members of society, and a cast that includes a lot of beloved theater actors in teeny tiny roles, and you got yourself the Gilded Age. Christina, what'd you think? I, every week, watch this show, and I have a fine time. I chuckle every time Christine Baranski says some sort of witty, cutting remark, I have a great time looking at all of these theater actors in these teeny tiny roles. The first episode I watched with my housemate and I kept being like, mm, Tony, that person has a Tony. That person's been nominated for a Tony. And I think she thought I was kidding after a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do I think about this show like the second it ends? Not really. But I still have a great time mm-hmm. watching my harrowing friends work through their money issues, I guess, with one another. Like, I don't know what the show is doing, but I'm just happy to watch it. I'm happy Excellent. to watch Carrie Coon do anything. If she wants to sure. read me the phone book, I'm happy to be here for it. Yep. Yeah. So I'm having right. fun, but I don't really know why. Okay. <laughs> uh, Greta, what's your take? I agree with Christina on a lot of fronts. Like, this show is very nice to look at, right? Like, uh-huh. the costumes, the setting, the people, it's all very lovely. I definitely think the most interesting aspect of this show, which you referred to as you were describing it, Glenn, is the portrayal of, like, working-class and affluent Black life in New York in that time period. Uh-huh. We don't see that very often, and I think it's really, like, interesting and important. I wish there were more of it. It feels a bit wedged into me. Uh-huh. Beyond that, I don't know. Like, yes, it's a good hang. I think initially when I thought about like Downton Abbey on HBO, which more or less is kind of like how you would pitch this show, right? I was thinking like Downton Abbey, but salacious, maybe some cursing, more sex, like, you know, the HBO treatment. But really it's Downton Abbey with an HBO visual effects budget, which is (laughs) fine. To your point, Christina, this is not one of those shows where I watch it. And then the next day I'm like, ooh, I wonder what's going, you know, like it hasn't planted (laughs) seeds in my brain in that really satisfying way that like a really good story does, you know? Uh Uh-huh. I hear you. You mentioned satisfying. That's my first and only note. You know what feels good? (laughs) Having my expectations so thoroughly and perfectly and overwhelmingly met. It feels good. Good, Mm. not great. Right? Not surprising. Mm-hmm. Sure. Not intriguing. Not <laughs> exciting. Just good. Sure. You got to say the show delivers on its promise. And yeah. it does so with such absolute precision. It does nothing else. But <laughs> <laughs> it is not interested in doing anything else. It's and not. I don't want it to. I don't need it to. I, I think Julian Fellows probably thinks he's doing something new. He probably thinks this old versus new money is a radical departure for him. It is not. He hmm. thinks throwing in the character of Peggy allows him to explore the issue of race in America. And who better, really, than <laughs> British Lord, peer of the realm... I looked this up. Deputy Lieutenant of the County of Dorset, oh, Julian dear. Alexander Kitchener Fellows, Baron Fellows of West Stafford. <laughs> yeah, I've been clamoring for his voice on American <laughs> race relations. So. When will Baron Fellows chime in is what, what we've all been thinking. So this guy has a very narrow and rigid channel of storytelling that he works in. And he does it well. But every time he tries to introduce new elements, you get this moment of, oh, this will be interesting. This is new. But then he immediately sets about treating them like every other element he's ever worked mm-hmm. with, and they just conform to this rigid kind of infrastructure. You get Carrie Coon, all right? Carrie Coon, best actor of this, our modern age, so good at interiority and nuance and conveying layers of meaning with a single expression, and you have her seethe and scream and throw her breakfast tray, and then... In my favorite scene of the show so far, she stares into a roaring fireplace, shaking with rage as the score swells. And it's like, dude, you've got a Swiss army knife and you're treating it like a hacksaw. 
And I know all this sounds like a complaint. It's not for me, right? He is working in a very specific genre. It's one he's not interested in subverting or tweaking or or, or blending. Mm. And I am not asking him to (laughs) do the thing that you do. His genre is very specific. It is, oh dear, there's rather a spot of bother with the pudding spoons. (laughs) That's his vibe. That's the stakes. That's the genre. That's what I came here for. So I sit down, I watch it, and I'm like, Shut up, slap a hat with a really disquieting amount of feathers on top of Christine Baranski, have her say something withering, and cut to the next scene. Let's go. That's the show. And you know what? They do do that. I will have to give them that. I do wonder how much of the problem is perhaps Louisa Jacobson, Gummer 3, as I refer to her, um, because do not let her fool you. She is, in fact, a street daughter. I don't understand any of her motivations. I just can't quite get a grasp on what she's doing. She's giving me senior showcase energy and I just (laughs) need like a little bit more, especially if you're going to be in scenes with people like Christine Baranski. Have you made any plans yet? She's only just arrived, Agnes. I haven't made any plans, no. I suppose you only recently learned that your father had let you down. Please don't speak ill of daddy. I will say what I like in my own house. Not to me. I just need like a touch more from her. And I wonder if because so much of the motivating premise of the show is set on her, this action of her moving is like, sure. maybe that's why there's a little bit of, eh, I don't know. Well, I mean, I think especially in the pilot, but kind of still after having seen episode five, like I feel like all of these characters are pretty one-dimensional. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. to your point, like this young niece, she's like, oh, my aunts are so dowdy. I just want to do stuff, you know? And then, like, <laughs> there's, as you point out, Christine Baranski being like, oh, well, we don't speak to them. Mm-hmm. Every line, they pretty much just reiterate this over and over. My thought after watching the pilot was like, oh, y'all spent more money on lobster than you did on script writing. Mm-hmm. And like, okay. Mm-hmm. Like, the lobster looked great, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think the one-dimensional nature kind of speaks speaks to Fellow's politics and how it kind of slyly infiltrates the show. This dude is a conservative member of parliament in the House of Lords. But because this dude is writing about characters in the past and he knows he's writing for a modern audience, he can have a character like Maggie Smith's Dowager Countess or Christine Baranski's Agnes act mm-hmm. all stern and aggressive and old ways must be preserved, but then give them like a line of dialogue or <laughs> one action or one opinion that to us present day audiences, we recognize as progressive or at least common sense. And then we think that's a layer, right? We think, oh, she's not so bad. She's got layers. Does it matter to him that there is no universe in which <laughs> the Dowager Countess would say or act that way or Christine Baranski's character would ever hold that opinion? Nope. It's kind of a shell game. It's a little disingenuous. Yeah. I find those relationships so fascinating. Like all of these like smaller things about black characters that we don't get to see, as Greta was saying, in this time period that often. But I can't help but wonder just like, why are they here in this show? Is this the person to say this? And like, if so, why wasn't it just, you know, centered on this family? That could have been perhaps more interesting. Yep. Yeah, especially the newspaper drama. Like, mm-hmm. I am uh-huh. here for that. I'm here for the news. I'm here for print. It was really interesting reading up on this show because it's, like, staffing-wise, it seemed like they, you know, there is a really incredible black historical consultant mm-hmm. who initially was just going to be a consultant but now has a producer role. You know, there are some very prominent people working on this show to help create accuracy around black life in New York, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. But then it's sort of like... Do we need the other stuff? And it feels to me like that wasn't a priority initially either. It mm. feels to me like it was sort of retroactively yeah. it fit does. in. Yeah. 
And I'm glad it exists, but I wish there were more of it. I wish it felt a little more like solidly executed or something. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think it feels like, you know, for me as a Black woman watching it, it doesn't have that kind of like ring of falseness that sometimes when like Black Mm. characters are added to stories that are primarily white can have. And it does feel like there is like all of this Black talent and Black creation behind it. But it still is just like, but why is it like this? I don't know, one sixteenth of this part of the show. Like, where's the show that's just this? I wonder how much they're going to realize that that is what people are tuning in for. And if that's even going to be able to be a priority given Julian Fellows and the fact that this is still his show, you know? Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. As you both mentioned, this is the part of the show that we haven't seen before. The storytelling around these people. Everything else we've seen Almost exactly before. And I mentioned expectations, right? This is what Fellow's whole narrative storytelling shtick is. I recommend a McSweeney's piece that was called Every Episode of Television Show Written by Julian Fellows by Shannon (laughs) Reed. It is brilliant. But like what he does, right, is he sets up very precise series of expectations in his audience. And then he knowingly frustrates them for a little time, a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then he Mm -hmm. delivers unto his audience exactly what he made them want. Nothing is permitted to exist outside of those parameters. Mm-hmm. Nothing in a show happens for its own sake. If two characters exchange a glance, yep. it's not to let the actor do anything weird or put some interior life in their character or just to be there for its own sake. It's not to characterize character. It is there as a setup. Every look exchanged between characters is a setup, a klaxon to let us know <laughs> That something's coming. And because we know how Fellows works, we know exactly what is coming. And then when it happens, we feel smart. We feel satisfied when it happens. And sure, at some point in every episode of every television episode he's ever written, some character is going to say some version of the world is changing. And (laughs) here's why I don't mind that. They're not wrong. World's always changing. Huge if true. Let them say it. Do what you do. <laughs> and you know what? He is doing what he does. And mm-hmm. yeah, I do think it's a little interesting that he seems to, as opposed to in Downton, where like I felt like the folks who were working for these families had a lot richer and fuller lives. I don't know that he has such a handle on the primarily the, the two households that we see now. I just feel like there's so many characters in who make up like maids and cooks and servants. And I'm like, I get it. You have a French chef, but like what else is going on here? Like with all of these people, I maybe the cast is just too big. I don't know what it it could just be that. I agree. A great example, I think, is from this most recent episode. It might have been from four where that maid is given the pie and goes to visit her mother. And it's kind of the first time you see like mm-hmm. less affluent life in this world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not a pleasant time for this maid. And then she goes back to work and pretends like she has a great time. And it's like, why am I supposed to care about this? Right. And like, what's Michael Severus doing? He's going on walks. Christina, this <laughs> bugs me. Why do you have this actor doing this, exchanging looks and going on walks when something's coming? And I imagine I have a good idea, although they already mm-hmm. have done the gay subplot, so it's not that. Right. Anyway. I <laughs> did see a tweet that I related to very intensely about this show. Mm-hmm. And it's from Matt Collette, who's a podcast producer. And he said, if season one of The Gilded Age doesn't end with Carrie Coon burning down Christine Baranski's mansion, what are we even doing here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would pay cold, hard cash to see that. <laughs> right? Yeah. Totally, so, totally. I don't know. And like, okay, so that scene where the butler goes over to the butler house and sees how the other butler does it. Mm, and yes. you think, all yeah. right, here we go. What's going to happen here? Nothing happens. They Nothing. just kind of, yeah, they just double it. down on the theme of the show, which is new money versus old money. And it's like, okay, <laughs> this was a moment. This was a thing. 
still watching. Yeah. Again, like every week I sign up and I say, I'm ready to sit down and watch this. Like I'm ready to sit down and watch Christine Bransky's gay son be like petty at somebody for a reason that I might not really <laughs> understand, but I'm here. I'm happy to watch it. Like that's uh-huh. fine. I I'm like, it. of course, Christine Bransky has a gay son. You can't have that kind of mom and not have a gay son. Come on now. It's just the law of averages. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. Glenn. It's the law of gay average. <laughs> Something I've been thinking about. I think I might actually switch to binging the show. Like, I think I'm going to wait till the rest of the episodes come out and watch them in a, like, on a Sunday afternoon or something. Because by episode five, I'm a little more satisfied with the fact that, like, there is some plot happening. Mm -hmm. But I do wonder if having a bunch of them to watch in a row and just spending a lovely afternoon is a better way to consume this show than in these, like, weekly slices. Yeah. That's a perennial question, Greta, because, like, critics got all five episodes at once. We binged mm-hmm. them. And so, to us, the show exists in, in I think, a different headspace than mm-hmm. it does for people who are watching it one week right. at a time. Yeah. Well, and I watched them one week at a time until the last two episodes. I watched those, you know, I had screeners for those. Yeah. But I pretty much did do them one week at a time initially for the first three. And by the end of the third one, I was like, hmm. I think I might need to like save these up and see if it's more satisfying that way. I do think it would be a very satisfying binge. Sit down, have an afternoon in, you know, the Van Ryan household. Yeah, you make know? some trifle. Yeah. You know? Yeah. When you've got like, I don't know, wafer cookies that do not have a lot of substance, you can't just have just one at a time. You need to feel right. satisfied. Exactly. You need them all at once. Exactly. Something <laughs> yeah. this thin. Uh, and pretty and delicious. Yeah. yeah. You just need a handful. It's more than <laughs> the recommended survey says. <laughs> Can't be clear enough about how much I'm going to watch every episode I am given of this show. Like uh, uh, Season two, bring it on. If you want to do season three, let's go. I'm going to watch it and I will be happy to be there. Probably. All right. Well, tell us what you think about the Gilded Age. Find us at Facebook.com slash PCHH. That brings us to the end of our show. Greta Johnson, Christina Tucker, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much. Thank you. This was very fun. This episode was produced by Mike Katzif and edited by Jessica Reedy. And Hello Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Glenn Weldon, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Hi, I'm Jen White from 1A, the home of good conversation. But what makes it great are the ideas and insights you bring to the show every day. It seems only fair that when you make room for us, we make room for you. Listen to the 1A podcast from WAMU and NPR. The news affects your life, but your life isn't the news. That's why our podcast, Here and Now, Anytime, gives you a new perspective on the big stories of the day, but also stories about video games, stories about romance novels, and stories about music. Here and Now, Anytime, a podcast from NPR and WBUR that's into the things you're into, not just the news.